Luke chapter 6. Last time we saw that Jesus showed his disciples a new way of doing God's work with joy, with love, with excitement. Unfortunately, this flew in the face of the established religious system at the time. Today we're going to go see a continuation of this new way to do ministry, the way that God wanted it done, and the inauguration of 12 apostles from a pool of disciples that Jesus had. So verse 6. Now it happened on another Sabbath also that he entered the synagogue and taught, and the man was there whose right hand was withered. Sometimes we read the text again and we don't fully visualize what was going on at the time. Uh, The word for withered, the Greek word is xeros, which means literally dried up or shrunken. What affliction did this guy have? Now it's purely speculation, but what comes to mind to me right away, I think about muscular dystrophy. And currently there's nine forms of muscular dystrophy. It's characterized by muscle spasms, stiffness, and eventually atrophy and disintegration of the muscle. It affects, it affects the central nervous system, the heart, the GI tract, the eyes, and the endocrine system. Uh, severe forms affect the heart and can be life-threatening. It's a genetic d- disease, and currently there's no cure for it. Again, this is one of the possibilities that this man may have had. Verse 7, And the scribes and Pharisees watched him closely, whether he would heal on the Sabbath, that they might find an accusation against him. We saw last Sunday how the religious leaders practically made a god out of the Sabbath. They snuffed the life out of God's original intention for the Sabbath. Making something a god, what does that mean? Well, that means that you know God is to be honored above all. He wants primary place in our life, and everything else has to come secondary. When you make something a god, you take something that you, you, know, you have affection for or you like to do, and you place that above God in your life. And, you know, some people make their children a god. And you could see it in the behavior of those children. Some people make their success or their work a god. And you could see it in the neglect of their family. So when we put God first, we always find the right place, you know, the right order of things in our lives. The fact that these Pharisees and scribes followed Jesus around to scrutinize him to see if he would heal on the Sabbath caused many to speculate over the years if this was a setup. Did they purposely put this afflicted man in Jesus' path because they knew he would heal them? They would catch him in the act. But in the act of what? Showing mercy, showing love to this man? But see, they knew his character. Whenever you put an afflicted person in Jesus' path, no matter when it is, he's going to heal them. Wow, even Jesus' enemies knew his character. Could that be said of us? We sure hope so. John is always willing to do God's will. Cindy always has a word of encouragement. Jen is always reliable. You just know that these people are consistent in in their goodness, right? And again, it's not that we should be overly concerned about what other people think about us, but it's certainly better to have a good reputation than a bad reputation. Verse 8, But he knew their thoughts and said to the man who had the withered hand, Arise and stand here. And he arose and stood. Mark's gospel adds that Jesus looked around at them, the religious leaders, with anger because of the hardness of their hearts. The worst type of hypocrisy and unbelief is when it happens in ministry. As a matter of fact, James 3.1 says, Let us not all become teachers, because don't you know we will receive a stricter judgment? And Mark 3.6 also adds that the Pharisees and Herodians plotted 
on how to destroy Jesus. Well, how unusual was that? The Pharisees, if you know the two groups, you can understand why that's, that's weird. The Pharisees were religious leaders. They, were, they walked around pious. They had the appearance of, of worshiping God day and night. And the Herodians were politicians. You know, they were the puppet kings for the Roman government. To the Jews, oh yeah, we're, we're part Jewish, sure, we, we, we're with you. And then they would turn to the Romans and say, oh yeah, we, have, we swear allegiance to Rome. So these guys were, were politicians. But at this particular time, the Pharisees and the Herodians got together. What strange bedfellows. But it is amazing to see the forces of evil line up and come against God's people because they share a common enemy, God's people. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. Don't take it personally, it's because of my message. Jesus didn't shirk from the Father's will even when the forces of evil lined up against him. That's a lesson for us when we fear what man can do to us. Sometimes we know we should do the right thing, but maybe we're in a, a group of people that you feel peer pressure. Maybe it's at your job. Maybe it's, it's in, in public. And you kind of shirk from doing God's will because you fear man. But Jesus set the example for us, regardless of what man thinks to do God's will. Verse 9. Then Jesus said to them, I will ask you one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? I also want to read, flip to Matthew 12, parallel gospel on this uh, particular topic. Matthew adds a little bit more. Matthew 12:11 through 12, Jesus says this in addition to what we just read. What man is there among you who has one sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value, then, is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. So Jesus shows their hypocrisy. They're showing compassion for an animal, but what about a fellow human being? And Jesus uses very polarizing language here. Good, evil, save, destroy. Why? Because he makes it clear that you can't sit on the fence on this one. Refusal to do good when one has the opportunity to do good is commensurate to doing evil. Refusal to save is equivalent to destroying. When I was in college, I took this course, this is going back some years, not too many years, called um, Criminal Law of New Jersey. And it was taught by Defense Eternity. It was a very interesting course. And one of the things he spoke about our obligations in society, our legal obligations. One thing he said was the law does not provide for moral obligations in the sense that if you were walking by a lake and you saw a kid drowning and you didn't help that kid and the kid drowned, you couldn't be charged with anything. There's no legal obligation to help somebody. However, there is a moral obligation. And even this man, uh, just judging by his fruits, I don't believe he was saved, but... Uh, he even said we have a moral obligation, although we don't have a legal obligation. And God's people are held to a higher standard. Now, again, I speculated before about this man's condition. Was it muscular dystrophy? It's just conjecture. Or did he have a symptom of a worse disease? Uh, Was this man at the end of his rope? Was he barely eating because he couldn't work? Notwithstanding all these questions, Jesus healed the man. He gave him back his dignity And possibly he gave him back his opportunity to provide for his family. As far as Jesus was concerned, it also was not a day too soon. Why let this man go one more day in his condition? Verse 10. And looking around at them all, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, 
and his hand was restored as whole as the other. But they were filled with rage and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Jesus commanded the man to follow through. The healing was already ordained, but it was the man's responsibility to lay hold of it. God is looking for diligence. He's looking for spiritual diligence and not laziness. I wonder how many, and we've all been there, I wonder how many blessings we may have missed out due to spiritual laziness. Isn't it amazing, though, how these people were focused, so focused on being critical that they missed God's blessing? Do you ever meet people like that? Now, look, everybody has a, a concern. You know, they, they have, hey, Pastor Joe, could we do this? Hey, great, why don't you come up with that and we'll support you. I give them something to do. It's kind of neat. But there's some people who just have to complain about everything, not one thing. Everything's a problem. We don't like the music. We don't like the teaching. We don't like your choice for elders. I could have done a better job than those guys. Don't like the way the ministries are run, and on and on and on. And the question is, so what is the Lord teaching you, right? Now, I can say I've probably gone through all the worst phases of being a Christian, so I've been there. And in the critical phase, you kind of don't see what the Lord is trying to teach you because the focus is on yourself, about how everything could be changed to please you. A critical spirit has none of the fruits of the spirit and many of the works of the flesh. I've got to tell you, we don't have a whole lot of problems in this country when you look at the whole world. You have to look at the overseas community, have to look at the persecuted church. I subscribe to a periodical uh, called Voice of the Martyrs, and in one of the, uh, the articles, there's actually a bunch of uh, American doctors, Christian doctors, that go over to Nigeria and Africa. There's so many people, little children, women, you know, who are being persecuted, who are being macheted, who are losing limbs just because they call themselves Christians. They want to assemble peaceably in a church and the government bombs their churches and they come back to the church with no roof and they still go out and they praise the Lord. Um, just a few things here. I could, sh- I could show it to you after service if you're interested in looking, but they say that a picture is worth a thousand words. This little Sudanese boy was going through the fields and was being chased by the Khartoum government soldiers. And because they wouldn't convert back to Islam, they burned the fields. There's a picture of a little boy with burns over 90% of his body, still praising the Lord. The Hmong people in Vietnam, they're a minority. Most of their villages have converted to Christianity. But they're under fire by the government because they're Christians. Not bothering anybody, they just want to be Christians. Um, there's just a lot of examples here, a lot of pictures. The young lady here, a Pakistani lady, had acid thrown in her face, and they show the picture of her face and all these doctors trying to come and try to repair her so that she could have normal movement of, the, of her eyelids. Let's see. It's kind of disturbing, but you know what? These are our brothers and sisters. I, I don't feel bad about showing you this or telling you about this because one day we're going to be with them in eternity. They're our brothers and sisters. Um, is, let's see, illegal baptisms because they can't be baptized in a church. In Vietnam, this looks like pretty much sewer water. It's brown. But they're just basically happy to be baptized and to show the Lord that, you know, that outward baptism to show their inward hearts about being Christians. So we, when we really take everything into consideration, we have it pretty easy as Christians in this country. But in the name of God and doing ministry, the Pharisees were miserable. They wanted to appear more holy and they looked more miserable because they had the erroneous assumption is if they looked like they were suffering and they had the long face that Jesus explains and uh, they had the appearance of fasting and the appearance of making long prayers, 
that people would look at them and go, wow, they're really dedicated to the Lord. But see, God doesn't want us to be miserable when we serve him. He wants us to be joyful. They totally missed the point. I was telling you one service before, they, they gave me a, a new officer. I don't think they like the name Rookie, but he's a rookie. And he rides with me. And <laughs> I talked to him about the Lord, and he's like, me and religion, I want to keep religion far away from me. But the more I explain to him about what God wants out of us in the relationship, he asks questions. So to him, what he knows of religion, he doesn't want anything to do with it. He wants to compartmentalize that in his life and just go on Sundays. But when we really understand the things of God, it's an interesting thing to him. In the next passage of Scripture, Jesus chooses 12 disciples to become apostles. There's a transition from apprentice to messengers. Remember, the word disciple means a student or an apprentice. And the word apostle means sent once. He chooses 12 from this pool of disciples. And again, I spoke the last time about how religious leaders or spiritual leaders would have a following. They would learn from the spiritual leader, and Jesus was no different. As a matter of fact, in Luke 10, he sends them out two by two. He had 70 of them. In John 6, 66, the Bible says that after explaining a spiritual truth to the disciples, to the, to the masses, Many disciples turned away and followed no more. It was a hard thing for them to swallow. So it is possible that Jesus had well over 100 disciples at one point in time. But here, the 12, these 12 are challenged to take it to the next level. Now, I think about Jesus talking about the parable of the talents. He speaks about God as being like the landowner or the boss. And he gives three of his servants uh, talent. And talent is kind of funny because it's a play on words. It comes out in the English. The word talent was a measure of weight. Depending on gold or silver, would be, there would be a certain value affixed to a talent. But also in the English, the word talent that we understand is an ability. So it's kinda, it actually fulfills both roles in this parable. So the landowner gives the three servants each. One, one guy gets one talent, the other one gets three, and I believe the other guy gets five. And the, the guy with three does business with it and multiplies the money. The guy with five does the same. The guy with one takes it, puts it in a handkerchief, and buries it in the ground. When the, when the landowner, as a picture of God, comes back, he's pleased with the two that made something with the money, that, that multiplied it. But the guy who had one talent, he called him a wicked and lazy servant. So the point there is that when God gives us gifts and gives us abilities or talents, it's for us to further the kingdom of heaven. It's for us to go out and make God proud. And not that we have to slave in a field, but that we joyously take those abilities that we have and we, we bring them to other people to further the kingdom of heaven. So verse 12, it says, Now it came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called his disciples to him. And from them he chose twelve whom he also named apostles. A few things to understand about this is we should pray before ma making any major decision. When was the last time any of us stayed up all night to pray? Probably can't remember, right? And I've got to say, the prayer nights and prayer groups traditionally are the least attended functions in the church. It's a shame. But we need to be praying, and I hope that we're all praying, because if not, we're in trouble. We're in trouble as a church here. We need that prayer. Two, you should be diligent. Jesus prays all night and then gets up to do God's work. Again, diligence versus laziness. I think about um, even in our physical life, how our physical laziness can transfer to spiritual laziness. I had the uh, honor to do uh, Marty's dad 
his, Elisha Conti's funeral. And I got to learn, actually I knew him, but I also got to learn more about him through the family members. This was a man who had a big family and worked three jobs. He worked three jobs to feed his family. That was the most important thing to him, to take care of his family. You don't see that a lot these days. You know, we, we live in a society where, you know, we have climate control. It's great, isn't it? You know, we have a roof over our heads. We have uh, computers. We even, there's even a thing now where you can shop online. You know, you can get on your computer and log on to a supermarket and say, pound a you know, stick of butter, a quart of milk, a loaf of bread. You send it, and they come, and they deliver it to your house. I mean, we have an easy life here. So it, that, that diligence has to be cultivated in us. And that diligence also has to transfer to our spiritual life. And three, make a good decision. Proverbs 22.3 tells us that the, the foolish man, when he sees danger, does nothing and he's punished for it. The wise man prepares for it. So some people ponder things to death. It's like the paralysis of analysis, the analysis of paralysis, something like that. But if you've prayed about something and it's within God's will and it's scriptural, then act on it. God rewards an honorable decision. And four, what do we think prayer is supposed to accomplish? Now, Jesus chose Judas, remember? And Judas betrayed him and then committed suicide. So the question to ask is, this is a very good question, did Jesus make a mistake? Did he make a mistake in praying for Judas? Well, the answer is no, because Judas, even in his traitor, uh, what he did, he accomplished God's will. Psalm 22, the psalm of the cross. Jesus had to go to the cross. Uh, Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. The Messiah had to suffer for us. And Psalm 41.9 says specifically, uh, probably up to a thousand years before Jesus even took the form of a man, that his close companion, his friend, would betray him. Right? So prayer does not always deliver us from something. See, we seem to think that. You ever see that commercial where they're doing surgery and it's a hard surgery and they have this big red button and it says easy. I don't even know what that's a commercial for. You're all laughing. It's the easy button. You know, the, the Spetzer surgery will go easier or whatever. Um, and, and whatever somebody's in, in, in a, a difficult situation, they have that easy button. Sometimes we think that when we pray to God, okay, hit the easy button, pray to God, and my problem's going to be gone. But that's not true because prayer a lot of times is to deliver us through something. And we have to understand that. We don't always get a break when we pray. Oh, Lord, this is terrible. You may have to go through something. But if you pray and you commune with your Father in heaven, at least he'll carry you through that situation. Because you're going to go through it anyway, whether you like it or not. So prayer does not always deliver us from something. Many times it delivers us through something. Verse 14. Simon, who he also names Peter, and Andrew his brother, James and John... Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called the Zealot, Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who also became a traitor. Let's break down the type of person that God uses to do his will. Let's look at Peter. As, as a human being, Peter was impulsive. Peter was impetuous. He often had to go back on his word because he said something foolish. That's our Peter that we know and love. As a matter of fact, in addition to Jesus... The Apostle Paul had to rebuke Peter in Galatians 2 for hypocrisy in spiritual matters when dealing with the Gentiles. Let's look at James and John. These guys wanted to sit on the right hand and the left hand of Jesus in his kingdom. They were vying for position, 
And they also put their mother up to do their dirty work, if you read the scripture. She came to Jesus with them there, and she spoke for them. Boy, that lady had a lot of moxie. She must have been an Italian mother. I don't know. But Matthew was was most likely an, an extortioner and an outright thief prior to following Jesus. Philip, after walking with Jesus three years and seeing the miracles, Philip says to Jesus, Jesus, show us the Father and it is sufficient for us. After three years of being with Jesus, he wouldn't be satisfied until he saw the Father. And Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Simon the Zealot. Now, Simon has two names in the scripture, Simon the Canaanite and Simon the Zealot. They each mean something different, but this word has a double meaning. Now, if he truly was a zealot, he would have always been pushing the Messiah to take Rome by force. That's what the zealots did. Now, interestingly enough, what does that sound like today? A terrorist. So he is quite possibly he had somebody with the mindset of a terrorist in, in his group here. Doubting Thomas, should I say more? Here's a guy who sees the resurrected Christ but won't be totally convinced until he gets to take his finger and put it in, in Jesus' side and put it through the wounds in his wrists that the cross made. Um, all except John, the scripture records, abandoned Jesus when he needed their companionship the most. Now, when Jesus went to the cross, he didn't need his disciples for... He needed the Father. He needed that communion with the Father. But, you know, he developed a close relationship with these men, and he could have used their companionship. And the scripture records the only one who was there was John. And Judas. Judas was a traitor and a fool. Because like Peter, after his betrayal, Judas could have repented and been restored, but he chose to kill himself instead. And that brings me to my next point. There's nothing that you can do that God won't forgive. Even Judas, who betrayed Jesus, if he would have asked for forgiveness, if he would have repented, he would have been accepted back into the fold, but he chose to go another way. I think of, remember Son of Sam, killer, um, 25 years, 30 years ago? I was young. Uh, But David Berkowitz, he killed maybe six or seven people, uh, brutally, and he went to jail. They found him guilty. He's been in jail ever since. But I actually found a, a thing on him, um, an expose on him, and he became a Christian. His whole countenance is different. I still remember when they arrested him and he went on trial. He had that thousand-mile, you know, thousand-yard stare. He was, something was wrong with him. He could have been possessed. But he was led to the Lord in prison, and his whole countenance changed. The guy looks like a different person. And he doesn't want to get out of prison because he's doing prison ministry now. So there's nothing that you can do. If David Berkowitz can be saved, if the Apostle Paul can be saved, anybody can be saved. And a lot of, with a lot of people, the only thing hindering their restoration is themselves. It's that nasty five-letter word called pride. We struggle with the world, the flesh, and the devil. The flesh. Sometimes we're our own worst enemies. We struggle with ourselves. But let's not forget Paul here, the Apostle out of due time. Here's a guy who admittedly viciously persecuted Christians. As a matter of fact, the Lord got Paul's attention. His name was Saul, formerly, and the Lord changed his name when he was heading to the road uh, to to Damascus to abduct Christians, men and women, bind them and bring them back to trial because they were Christians. You could read that in Acts Acts chapter 9. But a few things to note about these people. Number one, yes, these people had serious character flaws, to say the least. But God uses imperfect people. That's something that we have to understand and get through our thick skulls. If God can use them, he can definitely use any of us here. He can use me. He taught a donkey how to talk. He can use me, right? (laughs) Number two, 
These people messed up big time, but they didn't wallow in their failure. They pressed on for the kingdom of heaven, except, of course, for Judas. This is a good lesson to us, because in the Christian life, we still fail. Sometimes, you know, when, when you're a new Christian, you, you're now a spiritual being. You know, you're born again, and you're really a baby, and you have to learn spiritual things as a, as a baby learns things. And as you grow, you have a lot of questions. But you think that when you become a Christian, that you're not going to sin anymore. And then when you sin, you're disappointed with yourself and wonder if you're even saved. All these questions go through the minds of, of new believers. Uh, people ask me these questions and I smile, not because I'm making fun of them, because I ask those questions too. How do I know if I lose my salvation? How do I know if I committed the unpardonable sin? You have all these questions. Why am I still sinning? I'm a Christian. But a good lesson to us is to know is that as Christians, we still fail, but we allow the Lord to pick us up. He's the one who sustains us. And we, can't, we shouldn't wallow in our failure. And verses 17 through 19. It says, And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and be healed of their diseases as well as those who were tormented with unclean spirits and they were healed. And the whole multitude sought to touch him for power went out from him and healed them all. So when Jesus took the form of a man, he was not omnipresent. He certainly could use the help. We see a lot that you know, Jesus slept, Jesus ate, Jesus felt pain. And the disciples and apostles helped Jesus in his ministry, and Jesus built the church and then used them to further the church after his ascension into heaven. But he helped them get the word out, and he helped them meet the needs of the people. That's a twofold ministry. We make the mistake sometimes when we leave one of those out. If we're teaching the word of God, that's good. But if we're ignoring people's needs, that's not good. They have to go together. The same thing as when people meet the needs of, like a lot of social programs, meet the needs of people, but they're not giving them any spiritual food. They're not giving them any spiritual guidance. It doesn't help these people. The two have to go hand in hand. And again, that's why we were called the body. I want to turn to 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 27. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 27. Now, as I'm reading this, I want you to visualize a body, a physical body, and different parts, the hand, the foot, the eye, the ears. But I also want you to envision the body here. Look at each other. You all have different talents. Uh, some of you are great encouragers. Some of you are prayer warriors. You know, look at yourselves as pieces of that body. So think of it two ways as I'm reading the scripture. It says, For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body, just as he pleased. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now indeed there are many members, yet one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, 
Much rather, those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor, and our unpresentable parts have greater modesty. But our presentable parts have no need. But God composed the body, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it, that there should be no schism or division in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. And if one member is honored, then all the members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. And then he speaks about the gifts. And God has appointed these in the church. First apostles, second prophets, third teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, variety of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Are all workers of miracles? Do all have the gifts of healings? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet I will show you a more excellent way. We are going to have problems if we don't grasp the concept as Christians that we're all part of the body, that we all need each other, and live that concept. You know, I don't just get up here from Sunday to Sunday and give a message and then go home and tomorrow forget that I'm a pastor. Um, a lot of things happen during the week. People come call me with problems in their marriage. People come call me with tragedies. The elders or assistant pastor and even some people in ministry are also called to support the body. But I need help too. And you know what? I've got to tell you, when you guys are praying for me, I feel it. I feel refreshed and invigorated. Because I can't do this from Sunday to Sunday. I can't do this during the week if I'm not getting the, the, the body praying for me. That's where you come in. I can support you only if you can help support me. And it goes back and forth. It's a mutual relationship. And I need that prayer. You know, Satan tried to destroy this church last year and the Lord held us up. Those of you who have been with us for a while understand what I'm talking about. And he's been quiet. Satan's been quiet for a while and now he's starting up again. I've got to tell you people, Crossfield is being sifted as wheat. It happened to Peter and it happened to Job and it happened to many other people in the scripture. And it happens whenever the Lord is working. Some of you have no idea what the heck I'm talking about. And about probably 50 of you or more are saying I know exactly what he's talking about because I'm living it now. I've noticed in the last few weeks people are coming to me with more problems with their marriages, problems with their jobs. Maybe you're being persecuted at your job or you can't find a job. Relationships with other Christians. Our ministries have been attacked. People, your health has been attacked. I have a full prayer list here, and that doesn't include all the people that need prayer just in this body. Temptations. All these things are happening to us. But I've got to tell you, there's no shame in this because, again, whenever God does a good work, Satan is looking to mess with us. But God uses that. God uses when Satan sifts us as wheat to grow us. As we go through these trials, when we come out, we become stronger. We have that approved character. We have that perseverance, that patience. Read Romans 5, 1 Peter 1, and James 1, and it'll talk to you about those things. But remember, Jesus said this, In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. It may not look like it right now, but it is the truth, and you will realize that promise one day. So I want to say this. We need to stay in the Word. We need to stay in the Scripture. We need to be praying, and we need to be fellowshipping with each other. We have to be knit together as that body of Christ. Let's pray.